The Philadelphia Eagles are the greatest football team of all time. <laughs> Debate me, anyone? I've been waiting all week for that, just in case you're wondering. Now, we, we wrapped up our true series uh, last week, and so if you missed any of those messages, I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to them on our podcast or online. Uh, we're starting this morning a, a series on Advent leading up to Christmas uh, the next three weeks. Uh, and so this morning, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Uh, baseball fans across the country have kind of been experiencing their own type of Advent this past year. Uh, if you are a baseball fan, and if you're not a baseball fan, you've probably heard the name Shohei Ohtani. Uh, and that's because Shohei Ohtani is largely regarded as the, the best baseball player right now uh, and maybe one of the, the best of all time. Uh, in part because he's both a pitcher and a hitter. Which, frankly, I don't really understand what's so great about that. Uh, every time I play backyard baseball with my son, I have to be both a pitcher and a hitter, so kind of big deal. But he's, he's one of the best pitchers and one of the best hitters. Or in other words, he's, he's really, really good. And every baseball fan wants him to be a part of their team. And so fans were waiting and waiting and waiting until yesterday he ultimately signed with the Los Angeles Dodgers for, yeah, there you go, there you go, for $700 million. It's crazy. Fans knew, though, they knew if he would come to their team, to their city, to their place to play, that it would be a cause for good news of great joy, because immediately their hopes and their outlook for their team would be completely different. That, That might be a small picture of what God's people experienced for years and years and years as they waited and waited and waited for this coming Messiah that God had promised to send. Until 2,000 years ago, Jesus arrived on the scene. And it was cause for good news of great joy as people realized our God has come to us and he's going to rescue us and save us and deliver us. But, but sometimes we forget that Jesus came into this world not only to be a savior, but also to be a, a king. And so his coming is both good news, but it's also a confrontation to our lives. Because he comes to rule over us as king. To have us bow our knees and submit before him and give our entire lives to following him. He, he comes to bring his kingdom, which all other kingdoms must ultimately fall to. And one day that kingdom is going to be perfect and last forever. And so we find ourselves, as Joel kind of already said, again waiting for Christ to return and usher in this kingdom that he started 2,000 years ago when he first came. But, But in the meantime, we're invited to live as a part of his kingdom right here and right now as we wait. And life in Jesus' kingdom can seem so different from what we're used to in life in this world. Because how Jesus thinks and what he values and how he lives can be so different from the ways that I and you are prone to think, what we're prone to value, and how we're prone to live. And this is part of why Jesus' kingdom has sometimes been referred to as an upside-down kingdom, because it seems to flip things on its head in our lives. And, And yet, in reality, Jesus comes to turn our world right side up, and our lives right side up, and to have us think and feel and live as we were always 
meant to. And as we live right now in light of Jesus' kingdom, we get a taste, a small taste of what his future kingdom is going to be like. And we give a small picture to the world that might be watching in on our lives in the church of what his kingdom is like. And so this morning, we want to start this series that we've called Upside Down Christmas by looking at how Jesus coming at Christmas is meant to challenge and change our focus or mindset in this life. Zechariah, in Zechariah 9.9, the prophet who's looking out to Jesus' first coming said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Christmas shows us that our king is a humble king who calls his people to live as humble people as well. And, and perhaps nowhere is this more clearly taught and displayed than in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, where we find that Jesus humbled himself to save us so that we might also humble ourselves to serve others around us. That's the, the big idea behind this morning. And so let's pray together and then read the Apostle Paul's words in, in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. Father, as we come into the Christmas season, there's all sorts of things happening in our lives. There's busyness. Maybe there's looking forward to certain traditions we have year by year. That maybe there's also pain and hurt and suffering that Christmas just kind of brings up even more. In the midst of it, it's really, really easy for us either to get our eyes off of you or, or just to have the, the things that we've heard year after year after year to kind of fall on deaf ears. And so God, we're praying, asking for your grace, for your spirit to fix our eyes again firmly on Jesus and to cause us wonder and amazement and awe at what you've done for us at Christmas and not just at Christmas, but for our entire lives. And so I pray that you would speak to that end this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." That right there is where history is headed. That's where history is headed. And yet in the meantime, Paul writes this passage launching a direct attack on the way that we can be so prone to think and feel and live and calls us instead to live with the mindset of Christ. We see as we read through this passage, our natural default mindset just getting exposed as we 
think about it. That, that our default mindset is simply we live for ourselves. We live for ourselves. When I first read this passage this week and was kind of meditating on it, one of the first questions I wrote down about verses three through four is why is obeying what Paul says in verses three through four so stinking difficult? Why is obeying what Paul says in verses three through four so stinking difficult? Look, look back again at what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant, more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do, do you read that and think, that, I, I do that, that's easy. Or do you read that and think, man, that, why is it so hard to actually live that way and obey those commands? And, and the answer to that is because we are all born with this default mindset to focus on and live for ourselves that the self-centered mindset is kind of hardwired into our DNA. We have uh, in our house a, a dog that's part beagle. She's currently nine years old. And I have never once had to teach her how to chase after other animals. Right? She sees an animal and she goes as fast as she can after that other animal. Why? because that's just hardwired into her beagle DNA. And in the same way, none of us have to teach each other how to be self-centered and live for ourselves, because that's simply hardwired into our DNA in many ways. And it's not just Christians that recognize this is the default mindset of humans. A anyone who kind of takes time to reflect on human nature and how we live and how we think and how we feel comes to this conclusion that our natural default mindset is living for self. David Foster Wallace is a, a famous uh, author and also literature professor in a liberal arts college, uh, also a well-known agnostic. And he, he, in 2005, was invited to give this uh, graduation speech to Kenyon College and became this really popular speech that was then put into a book. And in the midst of that graduation address, he said, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and most important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It's our default setting hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. But I said, well, why is this? Why is this our default mindset? Why is it so easy for us to live lives that are centered on selves and so hard to focus on other people? And, and the Christian answer to that is because ever since Adam, we've all been born sinners and all been born putting ourselves at the center. That just as when Adam ate of the fruit, he tried to take the place of God, so all of us try to take the place of God and live at the center and have everybody else serve us and focus on us. And we can see in verses three through four, if we look back there, several ways this default mindset ends up exposing itself or playing itself out in our lives. First of all, that we live to gain and get ahead so that we look good. That, that's what selfish ambition and conceit are. When Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, 
Selfish ambition and conceit of this idea. I, I'm trying to gain and get ahead. Gain certain positions or privileges or reputation or achievements in this life that make me look good in front of other people. This, this is what led first grade Kyle to punch my best friend and get in trouble. Because I wanted to be the line leader. I wanted to be the line leader because every first grader knows the line leader looks good and that first grade girls are impressed by the line leader, right? And so when I didn't get the line leader because my best friend took that position, I clocked him. Why? Because I wanted to be first and I wanted to look good. Now the problem is it's far easier for us as adults to spot and see how foolish that desire is in kids. Or even in other people, right? Let's be honest, it's really far easier for us to see how other people are selfish than it is to actually see it in ourselves and see how this plays itself out. Yet yet how often does this mindset of trying to gain and get ahead so that we look good creep into our lives? How, How often is moving up in a career or just working hard in some ways, ultimately about, I want to look good. How how often is the the desire to have well-behaved and successful children in the long run really just a form of desire of, I want to look like a good parent? I want people to point to me and say, look look at what a good parent he or she is. How, How often is the achievements that we try to store up about us looking good, whether it's making a team or scoring the most or getting the most or the best grades, really just a version of, I want to look good, I want to stick out, or or even serving other people, even doing ministry. How often is this desire of, I want to look good, creeping in behind that? Paul Paul even addresses this in Philippians, where in Philippians 1.17, he says, there are those who preach the gospel, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. This desire to get ahead and gain so that we look good runs deep, exposing our default mindset. We can also just even see this in how we think, our thoughts, and what goes through our heads. We think we are more important than others. Let me read that again. We think we are more important than others. I wonder if you hear that and say, yeah, that's right. Because rarely do we put it that bluntly. Rarely do we acknowledge it that straightforward that we think we are more important than others. But, but how often do we get Paul's words in verse 3 flipped upside down that rather than counting others more significant than ourselves, we count ourselves more significant than others? Let's just stop and reflect for a moment. How, how often do we think things like, we don't, we don't say this, but we think things like, why don't people notice and appreciate me more? Why don't people see all that I'm doing here and notice and appreciate me and what I'm doing? more? How often do we think things like, why does no one else seem to care about all the problems that are happening in my life? No one's telling me all their problems. Why don't they care about my problems? I mean, how, how often does that thought maybe go through our head? How, how often do we get just a tinge of frustration or maybe far more than a tinge when someone else gets the spotlight and, and we don't? 
What would happen in your heart and mind the last time someone, even a friend or family member, got something you wanted and you didn't get it? Like, what, what, what's going on in our hearts and our minds in those moments? You might say, well, why, why do we think and feel that way? Because in those moments, we're thinking, I'm more important. I deserve to be noticed. I deserve to have what they have. Which then leads to the third way this default mindset shows up. We focus on ourselves and not on others. In verse 4, Paul tells us not only to look out or look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. The, the word look in that verse is actually this idea of watch and pay close attention. Watch and pay close attention. It's the, it's the image of a watchman who's on a wall looking out for all things. Or in our own context, it's the image of a deer hunter who's in the woods paying close, careful attention to see if any deer are going to come into his sight line to be able to take down. And the word there then, interest, to look out for each other's interests, that, that word actually isn't in like Paul's original letter. It's a filler word. It, it says something more literally like, don't just pay attention to your blank. Pay attention to other people's blanks. Kyle, don't just pay attention to your wants, your needs, your desires, your financial well-being, your health, your problems. Pay attention to others' wants, desires, needs, feelings, problems, and all that's happening in their lives. In reality, we know we're far more prone to spend time paying close attention to our own interests than to other people's interests. This self-centered mindset is so prevalent in our lives, and yet when we actually live this way, it ends up making us miserable. When we actually live focused on self, it makes us miserable because it makes us aware of all that other people have that we don't have. It makes us aware of every single minor slight or perceived slight that someone sends our ways. It causes life to be this kind of one constant performance where, where we're just trying to look good. It causes us to be critical and angry towards other people when they get in the way of what we want. Living a self-centered life makes us miserable in the long run. We shouldn't miss in a letter like Philippians where Paul is so concerned about joy. He's also constantly so concerned about humility and us putting others ahead of ourselves or us putting others ahead of ourselves. Right? Paul's laboring for our joy and he's saying if we want to have joy, it's found in us being humble and serving others and laying down our lives for others. But, but notice then how he does this. He doesn't simply tell us, stop being selfish. But he also tells us, look at Jesus. Look at your Savior. Look at your King. See what he did. See what he's like. That's exactly what Paul's doing in verses 6 through 11 as he directs our eyes to Christ and shows us Christ's mindset, that he humbled himself to serve us. There's this three-step pattern. If you look back at verses 6 through 8, there's this three-step pattern we see of Christ humbling and lowering himself for us that I want us to track and be able to see. First of all, Jesus gave up what was rightfully his. That rather than trying to gain for himself what wasn't his, he gave up what was already his. We, we, we can see this in the words, or here's how Paul describes it in verse 6. 
Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. What does that mean? He was in the form of God, he was God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, so he emptied himself. What, does that mean that he gave up being God when he became a man? Or, or does that mean that he was only kind of partially or mostly God? No, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Not fully man and partially or mostly God. Like our salvation depends on that. That he is 100% man and 100% God. So, so what does Paul mean when he says, well, Jesus emptied himself? It, it means something like he gave up the privileges and the rights and the comfort of being God. He gave up the, the privileges and the rights and the comfort of being God. Maybe a small picture of, of what he was doing might be this. It, it would be a little bit like the CEO of Ferrari giving up his rights and privileges to drive around in this car. That's a Ferrari 2023 296 GTB. I don't know anything about cars, so I don't really know what that means, but it's a nice car. Everyone would be like, yeah, I want to drive that. The CEO of Ferrari has every right to drive around in the newest Ferrari that comes out and the nicest one. Yet it would be like if he gave up his right and privilege to drive around in that and instead drove around in this. That's a 1993 Geo Prism. Hardly anyone's dream car. And you see in that scenario that the CEO of Ferrari doesn't stop being the CEO. He still is the CEO. But he's giving up what's rightfully his, driving around in a Ferrari, to instead drive around in this junker Geo Prism. When Jesus gives up the rights and privileges of God to take on a human body and become a man, that is a tiny comparison of what he's doing. Very tiny comparison. Because no one ever gave up more than Jesus. Like all of our sacrifices, all that we give up in this life is just puny compared to all that Christ gave up to become a man. And we might ask, well, why did he do that? Why did he give up those rights and privileges? Paul tells us next when he says, to be a servant. That Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Jesus came into this world in the form of a servant, Paul tells us, to serve and not to be served. And that started even at his birth. Jesus is born in a poor family, in a podunk town, in the back shed. Like, just never let that stop shocking us. He's not born in a rich and royal family, in an affluent city, in a palace. Which, by the way, is what we expect, right? Where do the wise men go when they're looking for Jesus? Jerusalem, to the palace, because that's where kings are, right? No, sorry, he, he's at Bethlehem in that shed. Probably not in the shed anymore, it's two years later. But you get what I'm saying. Jesus' birth set the trajectory for his life. Every step of the way in his life, he obeyed his father and served us and put our interests ahead of his own. The, the one who is more significant and more worthy of everyone else serving him is the only one who always only served others and put their needs ahead of himself. Listen, th this is like a lion giving away his life to serve a colony of ants. Th this is like Shohei Otani 
agreeing to be the ball boy for a little league team that goes 0-13 rather than playing for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Like, taking on a servant, going low. Jesus tells his disciples this even as they squabble over who's the best, right? They're having this argument of like, who's the greatest disciple? Who's done the most for you, Jesus? Who sticks out? Like, who's getting an A? And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. I came to serve, not to be served. Don't, don't miss this, church, because we can so easily focus on all the ways that we think we should serve God and forget that he came to serve us. Jesus and God, God does not need our service. He's God. He has all he needs. And yet he comes to serve us. And what's the supreme act of that service? Mark tells us when he goes on in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or if we continue in Philippians 2, we read, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to suffer to save us. Christmas means salvation for us because it meant suffering for Jesus. That's the only way it means salvation for us. Christmas means hope for us. And we get to sing all these songs because it meant sorrow for Jesus. Christmas means forgiveness and righteousness for us because it means shame and condemnation for Jesus. Christmas means life for us because it means death for Jesus. See, this entire list in Philippians 2, 6 through 8 is meant to be one surprise after another. God became a man. Wait, what? God became a man to serve us. Why why would God do that? God became a man to serve us by dying for us. You serious? What kind of God does that? God became a man to serve us by dying for us on a cross. The people who are originally reading this just have no concept for what type of God does that for his people. Jesus went down, down, down as he obeyed God and loved and served us. And and notice then what the result is. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this is our king. This is our king. This is the king who every single knee is going to bow before. And yet this is the king that came in humility who now reigns in glory. And his mindset and his pattern of life is now meant to be ours as well as we live in his kingdom. Jesus' mindset is now meant to be ours. Look back at, look at verse 5 with me in Philippians 2. This is the hinge between Paul saying, hey, don't be selfish. Look at Jesus. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we're to have this mindset of humbly putting other people ahead of ourselves, serving them just as Christ did. And we should notice that first of all, this mindset is actually a gift from God to us in Christ. Jesus' mindset is a gift to us. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ 
Jesus, that when we put our faith in Christ, God gives us this mindset because we're united together with him. My son Oliver recently turned five years old, and when he did, my wife and I got a birthday gift for him. We went out and we went shopping and we picked out a brand new bike to give to him on his birthday. This bike is both bigger and better than what his former little bike was. It is a gift from us to him. So also the ability to live with humility and put others ahead of ourselves is first and foremost a gift from God given to us when we put our faith in Christ. I don't know about you, but I might hear that and think, I don't know that that's a great gift. Can I have the, the bike instead? Like a humble mindset? I don't know if I want that. Can I have a new car instead? God, is there, is there a gift receipt for this humble mindset? Can I take this back and exchange it for something else? Like living with a humble mindset, that's a gift? But when we think that way, it's because we forget that freedom and joy are found in humility. Freedom and joy are found in living a humble life. Tim Keller captures this really well in his little booklet, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. I think about when are you happiest? When you're constantly connecting everything to yourself or myself? Or when you just forget about yourself? The latter, right? That's the mindset Christ wants to give us. And not not only that, but we can also forget that when people live with a humble mindset, it's a beautiful thing. Like, think about being in a family where everyone puts others' interests ahead of their own and everyone is looking for ways to serve other people in the family. You want to be a part of that family? Man, I do. That sounds really, really good compared to like, I'm going to get mine and everyone's got to serve me. Or think about a church where everyone puts other people's interests out of their own. And we're always thinking about how can I serve other people, not just within the church, but outside the church as well. Man, that's a beautiful church. Like, I want to be a part of that. Humility creates an attractive community that we want to belong to and we want to be a part of. And it also creates an attractive picture of God's kingdom for the world outside that's looking in on us. I, I, I love coming to Keystone on Sunday morning and seeing a worship team up here that gave up their Thursday nights and then woke up several hours earlier than all of us just to be able to come and lead us in worship on Sunday mornings. I love that. I love getting to pick up my son from his Sunday school class and see three to four volunteers that look a little bit exhausted because they've just spent an hour and a half with rowdy kids, including my own, seeking to love them and teach them about Jesus and invest in their lives. They're not getting paid for that. They're giving it up. I I, I love seeing on Sunday evenings youth workers who give up an entire night of their week. Sunday night, nonetheless, when football is on, to come and get to know teenagers, encourage them, and point them to Jesus. Man, I I love seeing people at Keystone who go out of their way on a Sunday morning to welcome in new people who are here for the first time or who they've not met before. I love seeing our elders give up a night with their family once a month to simply gather and pray for the church. I love seeing all the ways that people at Keystone are humbly serving other people in the community as well, not just here on Sunday mornings. Humility makes the church a wonderful family to be a part of. 
and it makes the church a wonderful sight to behold. That, that's why Christ's humble mindset is such a gift to us. But it's also a challenge to us because it's really challenging to actually live out this mindset in our lives. Jesus' mindset is a challenge. This humble mindset of Christ is a gift we're called to exercise and use. And it's really difficult for us to actually live that out. Go go back to uh, my son getting a bike for his birthday. It's a gift to him, but it's challenging to actually use that bike, right? To get on it, to ride it, takes energy, takes time. He's inevitably going to crash. He's going to skin his knees. He's going to get his elbows cut. Like it's a gift, but it's a challenge to actually use that gift. So too, this humble, other-centered mindset of Christ is a gift, but it's really challenging for us to actually live it out. Like let's just, again, stop and, and be honest and reflect for a moment. It's challenging to listen and care about other people's problems when we've got so many problems of our own in our lives. Is that challenging to just like listen and care about other people's problems? You're like, I've got so many problems of my own in my life. Why do I need to care about yours too? It's challenging to give up a night on the couch after a long day at work to love and serve your family or love and serve other people outside your family, right? That's costly. It's challenging to come to church on a Sunday morning and make it a priority to go up to new people, someone you don't know, and have a conversation with them or go up to someone you know is hurting and in pain and talk to them. It's challenging to put ourselves in other people's shoes and think about what are they facing and how might I be able to pray for them and how might I be able to encourage them. And so, like, that takes time, that takes energy, it's a challenge. This humble mindset is a gift that we're given, but it's a constant challenge for us actually to count others more significant than ourselves and look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others which should lead us to ask, okay, well, how then can we seek to live with Christ's mindset? How then can we seek to live with Christ's mindset? Faith, obedience, and worship are my three answers to that this morning. How can we seek to live with Christ's mindset? Faith, obedience, and worship. What what, what does faith have to do with loving and serving other people and putting them ahead of ourselves? Faith enables us to live with a humble mindset because faith says it doesn't ultimately matter what people think about me anymore or whether they see me and think that I look good because the verdict is already in for me. Because see, when God exalted Jesus, he also justified every single person who puts their faith in Christ. And so God's verdict in Christ is in and it's a good verdict. Therefore, we rely on that. We say, I don't, it doesn't matter whether I look good or not. That's not what I'm living for. That's gone. It's finished. I don't care anymore. But faith also enables us to look out and say, I believe that God will take care of me. Therefore, whatever I may give up or lose as I seek to serve others, I can trust God is going to take care of me. Faith faith enables us to give up our time, our money, our comfort, our, our energy, and far more to serve others because it says God will take care of me. Because it says, I believe in a God who exalts the humble. This is Matthew 23, 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humble and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Who does that? God. And so we've got the ability to serve and go unnoticed and go unthanked and realize that maybe no one ever sees what we do and yet to realize that God does see it and he cares 
and he is the one who exalts the humble. And so we put our trust in him. Second, obedience. That we look for ways of how we can give up what is ours to serve other people. That we look around us and, and we just ask a simple question. God, who do you want me to serve today? Show me. Who do you want me to serve today? Show me. That's a, that's a really good question for us to ask or pray as we walk through the doors on a Sunday morning. God, who do you want me to encourage today while I'm here? Like, who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to serve? Who, who needs me to just come up to them for a moment? God, show me. Or, or, or praying along with that, God, God, show me how you want me to serve other people. Like, show me. God, I need you to direct me and guide me. Show me who you want me to serve and how you want me to serve. We, we, we don't just wait around until we feel like serving other people. Because if we're waiting for that day, it, it probably will never come. <laughs> Because serving is always costly and it always hurts and it's always challenging and yet we seek to serve because we know that that's the mindset of Christ that we're called to live out. And, and then third, worship. Paul's words in verses 6 through 11, now maybe you can see this in your translation, it doesn't really do it in mine. It's actually a hymn. It's the song of praise to Jesus. A song that likely the church when they gathered actually sung together. The song of worship when we think about worshiping God, we often think about worshiping be, him because he's so big and he's so majestic and he's so powerful and we should worship him for all those things. And when we do, it helps to put us in our place because it reminds us we aren't a big deal. God's a really big deal. But, but in this hymn, Paul's inviting us to worship Jesus for his humility He's seeking to capture our imagination here and to have us stand back and wonder and be amazed by all that it means that God came to this earth as a man. And so just think with me for a moment. What does it mean that God became a man to come and serve us and die for us? It, it means that God who created all people was also himself born as a person. It, it means the God who sustains us moment by moment, giving us life and food and all that we need, cried for his mommy to nurse him. Like it means the God who upholds the universe and the reason it doesn't fall apart is because he's holding it together, also crawled around on the floor and then took his first steps one day. It means that the God who the angels have to cover their eyes to not look at because he's so glorious giggled and smiled with a toothless grin. It means the God who created all things good cried as he experienced the pain and loss that comes from living in a world broken by our sin. It means that the God who makes the sun rise every single day also sweat underneath the sun as he worked alongside his father in a woodshop. It means the God who is love felt the sting of betrayal as those he loved hurt him and betrayed him. It means the God who's perfectly pure and holy experienced the shame of other people scorning him and making fun of him day by day. It means the God who provides peace experienced anxiety over what's going to happen to me tomorrow. It means the God who is life himself took his last 
breadth and died. And then three days later, rose back to life and is now exalted as a king and is coming back again to rule over everything. That, that's our God. That's who he is. See, Christmas is this once a year reminder of a truth that should cause us to worship all year long. That our God became a man to save us. That our God displays his glory by coming in humility. That our God who is high and exalted bends low in order to serve us. And if that is who our God is and that's who we worship, then that's also the lives we're called to live now as an act of worship to him. Let's pray. Father, I long for the gospel and the truths that we especially celebrate at Christmas. Not to simply become another thing we hear, but I know it so easily can in my own heart and my own mind. God, I long for these truths for both myself and all of us to stir in us wonder and amazement and worship at the God who, yes, we serve, but who ultimately served us. God, God, I pray that you would help us to be people who know you as the God who came in humility to love us and serve us and save us. And then that we might be freed to be people who give our lives in all sorts of little ways to love and serve each other. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.